start off actually by telling you a story that about an event that actually in many ways inspired Rock the Block, our fall kickoff event. Um, I was actually working at a youth ministry. I was a paid intern at a youth ministry in, in Chicago called Harvest, and that was actually an aerial shot of this. Um, and every year we did a fall kickoff event in a, the open field, which was right next to the church. And we called it Mess Fest because it was like really, really messy. Um, and uh, every year we'd always just try to see how messy we could get it, like messier than the last year. And we put a lot of effort and we put a lot of prayer and we put a lot of time uh, and, and sweat into making Mess Fest one of the most amazing events of the year because we really tried to leverage it to connect with students connect them to our youth ministries, connect them uh, to Jesus when we share the gospel, uh, to uh, really leverage this as a way to generate momentum for our youth ministry going into the next semester. And so we put a lot of prayer into this. We really prayed that God would use MessFest to build his kingdom and, and use our youth ministry to, to be a part of that. Um, and, and so we, we put a lot of work into this. We even built an outdoor stage, a brand new outdoor stage right here in the field um, for this outdoor concert that we were going to have. I mean, we, we put a lot of time and, and thought into this. And then just as the event was about to start, I mean, we had been planning this for months, and just as the event was about to start, you hear a thunderclap and you start to see some rain coming. And actually there was a wall of rain that was moving towards us and it was traversing the tree line that was uh, parallel or right next to making that border of the field that we are using. And I began to freak out. Because I'm like, this is a big deal. God, we are doing this for you, right? Like, God, we are working for your kingdom and you're about to like spoil all those plans. God, why are you letting this happen? And, and I began to freak out. Uh, it, was like, it was a mess. I, I was a mess because I didn't see something else that was happening. Because literally on the other road that was opposite us, there was another wall of water traversing that road on the opposite side of the road. And what I didn't see was that the wall of water actually split right in front of us and went around us. Like, what I thought I was experiencing a mess, what I didn't see was I was standing right in the middle of a miracle. The rainstorm was literally splitting and going around us, and I didn't see what was happening. All I saw was one side of the mess, and I was starting to get, you know, having some words with God. God, why are you doing this? I was so focused on what I thought I saw was right in front of me that I missed seeing what was happening all around me. And I think we can all be like this at times. Right? Like, I think we can all, at times, have a mess that's right in front of our face, and we don't actually see the bigger picture of what God is doing. Well, we can have something happen right now, and we're not actually aware of what's happening all around. And I think we get so focused on ourselves, right? We get so focused on ourselves, we get so focused on our own mess, that we begin to think that God and what he's doing is only about me. Right? We, we begin to think that God and what he's doing uh, is for me. His salvation um, and his, his saving grace, his mercy is for me. And if it's absent, then it's absent everywhere. And we forget that 
that people all around this world, people who aren't like me, people who have issues that aren't like mine, um, still need God and still need the hope and the joy and the peace and the saving that he has to offer. And we lose sight of this because we only see the mess that's right in front of us. Uh, And so that's why I'm excited and, and actually burdened to talk to you this morning about the idea of mercy, messy mercy. In fact, if you're taking notes, which I highly recommend, um, that's the title of my message this morning. It's called Messy Mercy. Uh, And we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah and what God has to say about his own mercy. And I, I really believe, as you're turning to the book of Jonah, I really believe that if you listen to what God has to say to you this morning, if this isn't just a sermon for the person sitting next to you, but this is a sermon from God to you, um, I really am convinced that this has the potential to speak hope and to speak life and to speak purpose to someone today. Like, I really believe that God is speaking to you from his word. And my prayer and my hope and what I've been praying to God about the whole time is that God would use the mess that you're in as a way of bringing his mercy to you. And as a way of speaking hope and life and purpose into every single situation that I'm speaking to this morning. Uh, So... As you're heading to the book of Jonah, if you're having trouble finding it, it's right after Obadiah, it's right before Micah, and if that's not very helpful, um, (laughs) it's five books after Daniel, it's it's 12 books after the Proverbs, Um, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're headed, Um, and many of you are there as you're turning there, I just want to get something out of the way right away though, because the book of Jonah talks about a fish swallowing a man whole, I think a lot of people have trouble um, with the book of Jonah. I think a lot of people uh, have uh, probably incorrectly believed that maybe this isn't the word of God. Um, One of the things I want to mention, though, is, I mean, Jonah is referenced multiple times in Scripture as a historical person. In fact, 2 Kings 14.25 actually mentions Jonah as living during the time of Jeroboam II, which is 793 to 753 BC. And Jesus in Matthew 12 actually references Jonah as a historical figure as well. Um, And and we're going to discuss the science a little bit later on of, you know, some of the things that happen in the book of Jonah. But before we even get to that, one of the things I want to mention is that I want you to make sure that you can still have full confidence in the word of God, no matter how miraculous it sounds. Because I don't know about you, but I am very pumped and excited and glad that our God is a God of miracles, right? Like I wake up every single morning because our God is a God of miracles who breathes new life into my lungs and breathes new life into my spirit. I have the hope of eternity because God will do the impossible someday to raise me up again. I serve and I worship the God of miracles, and it should come as no surprise that God's book describes how miraculously amazing God is. God is so much further beyond us, and so to recognize the fact that, man, God does some stuff in the book of Jonah that's straight up miraculous should cause us to worship. Um, Now, unlike other prophetic books, actually the book of Jonah doesn't focus on the people that necessarily that Jonah is going to. And it doesn't necessarily even focus on the message. Now it certainly mentions that, but the book of Jonah actually is a case study on the prophet himself. 
right? So you, you read the book of um, Obadiah, you read the book of Micah, you read the book of Amos, you, I mean, so on and so forth, many of the other minor prophets, those often focus on the people that he's speaking to and in the message, but the book of Jonah actually focuses on the messenger. Um, and it really, what it does in this uh, small but significant prophet, prophetic book, it, it really brings to contrast the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. The book of Jonah puts Jonah's me-centered thinking in a stark contrast to God's merciful heart. Um, Jonah's me-centered heart, God's merciful heart. And that is the big contrast that happens in the book of Jonah. Now I'm going to be talking a lot about these two ideas of me-centeredness, or you could say pride, and the idea of mercy. So I really want you to know exactly what I'm talking about today, the operative definitions that I'm using, so we're kind of on the same page. When I talk about pride, I'm talking about the quality of having an excessively high opinion, like too high of an opinion, of one's own importance or oneself. And I just get that straight out of the Oxford Dictionary. But, but pride, or you could say me-centeredness, that's what we're talking about. Having an opinion of yourself or your own importance that's way too high. Now, that's what we're looking at with Jonah. Now, I'm talking about mercy as well. And when I talk about mercy, what I'm specifically referring to, especially when it comes to God and the narrative that he's bringing us into, is compassion or forgiveness to somebody else uh, in whom it's your power or your authority or your influence to punish your harm. So God has compassion towards us, right? When it's totally in his authority and his right to punish us for our sin, but God chooses not to. That's compassion. That's mercy. That's what we're talking about this morning. Um, and so as we're getting a grasp on the book of Jonah here, I'd invite you to turn with me to verse 1 of chapter 1, and it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The book of Jonah opens with the word of God coming to the man of God. And everything significant scripturally that's going to happen in Jonah's life happens after the word of God comes to him. Sometimes the most significant thing that will ever happen in your life is on the other side of hearing the word of God. Uh, and just as we're starting this morning, I want to ask, are you positioning yourself in a position to be able to hear the word of God on a regular basis? Some of the most significant things that are going to happen to you in your life are going to be on the other side of hearing the word of God. And that's what happens with Jonah. The significant things in this text that happen with Jonah are on the other side each time of the word of God coming to the man of God. And it happens three times. Um, there's basically three major acts in the divine drama called the book of Jonah. And the first major act begins with the word of God comes to Jonah. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, as we look in the whole of the text, God sends Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Now, what it sounds like at first is, you know, go call out against it. It sounds pretty uh, vindictive, but we realize 
He's giving Nineveh an opportunity to repent. And so what we see in the book of Jonah is God is mercifully sending his man to Nineveh to offer them mercy. Which sounds like a good thing. And I think a lot of times when we read the book of Jonah, we think maybe the crisis in the book of Jonah is the fish coming and swallowing Jonah. Maybe the crisis in the book of Jonah is God's impending doom on Nineveh. But what I'm actually beginning to realize is that the crisis in the book of Jonah is actually a crisis for Jonah. And it's a crisis for Jonah because of a condition of his heart. The crisis in this narrative is the call of God on Jonah's life. And it's a crisis because Jonah's, the call of God on Jonah's life is a threat to this me-centered kingdom that Jonah had kind of built up for himself in his own heart. Like this is why in his own pride, Jonah flees to Tarshish to run away from the presence of the Lord. Because Jonah, as we're going to learn later on, Jonah does not want to move outside of this me-centered thinking. God is about me, and God is about people like me, and God is only about people who believe and act and think the same way that I do. God doesn't care. God doesn't care about other people. And, and so Jonah has this, this subtle, me-centered, prideful thread going throughout everything that he's saying and his actions that he's doing. And so the call of God on Jonah's life to go offer mercy to Nineveh is a threat to that. And that is the crisis that really begins to raise a whole lot of other issues in this narrative, and that's why he takes off running. Guys, pride will always put you in a position of opposition to God. Pride will always put you in a position of opposition to God. Check this out. Verse 4, God in his mercy hunts Jonah down. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, and the captain came down and said to him, I had skipped a line. Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain of the ship came and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And, and I love what's happening because... In Jonah's running from God, God is relentlessly pursuing Jonah with his mercy, as, as scary as it seems to Jonah in the particular situation. Uh, God hurls this great wind on the sea, and, and when everybody's attention in the ship turns to Jonah, Jonah instinctively knows. Jonah instinctively knows that it's God trying to get his attention. I mean, he's been running from him. He's been trying to protect his own little me-centered kingdom in his heart. But Jonah instinctively knows that it's God trying to get his attention. And I just want to ask, have you ever instinctively known that God was trying to get your attention, but maybe you just kept ignoring him because what he was trying to say to you or what he was trying to get you to do was threatening this, this little kingdom that you've established for yourself or for your family that God doesn't really have a whole lot of part of? Ignoring God's voice has never been a good idea. And so Jonah, like, he finally realizes God's trying to get his attention and he confesses his bullheaded ignorance of God, ignoring God, running away from God. And he says, hey guys, there's something you really need to do if you want to fix the problem because I'm the issue right here. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased. It's raging. 
And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Sometimes your repentance is the greatest testimony to the people around you. You think you've got to put on this big show, pretend like you're this super happy Christian. Sometimes your repentance and your actual interaction with God is going to be the greatest testimony to the people around you. Um, it goes on to say this, though. God's hunting Jonah down, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to, make my, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I will vow, I, I have, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Verse 17 here, actually in Hebrew begins chapter 2. So I'm going to be dealing with chapter 2. But verse 17 and then verse 10 of chapter 2 are probably the most significant and most memorable um, verses in the book of Jonah. And actually one scholar ironically says, uh, this is the first of two verses which ruin the narrative. If this verse in verse 210 were removed, then the prophecy would be plausible for modern readers. And I think it's true but tragic that many point to this particular miracle of the fish, God sending the fish, swallowing Jonah, vomiting the fish out, as their reason for not believing the word of God. Um, ironically, this is not the only miracle that happens in the book of Jonah. Um, but many point to this and go, like, ah, I'm not so sure. Um, as I said earlier, God is not beyond doing miracles. That's how you're saved, right? Jesus Christ rose from the dead, um, seen again by 500 witnesses before he rose, ascended back to heaven again. Um, some of these things we cannot deny historically. And Jesus references Jonah as his historical person. The word of God and, and the son of God are speaking of the man of God here in the Bible. But I love the way that verse 17 concludes. Because it concludes with something really interesting. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And there's so many things I'm thinking about when I read that. But one of the first things I'm thinking about is I'm starting to wonder, like, what would it be like to spend three nights literally inside of a digestive organ. Right? Like we think that there's this huge, I don't know, maybe from VeggieTales or something, we think that there's this huge cavernous pit that Jonah is just like swimming in, you know? Like he's having a grand time. Yeah, it's not quite as comfortable as his house, but he's got some space. He's got his cabin over there. He's got his reading desk over here. Like Jonah is literally inside of a digestive organ for three days and and as many scientists could tell you certainly the conditions within a whale are slightly less 
than optimal for human survival. But I was reading actually an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, which is definitely not a Christian publication trying to prove Jonah right. But one of the things I read in there was there's a story of a sailor being swallowed by a sperm whale off the Falcon Islands. This is the sperm whale up on the screen here. Um, It's the only whale, at least that we have awareness of, that has an esophagus that's large enough to swallow a human. And inside of a sperm whale, there's four stomachs, kind of like a cow, with digestive enzymes and, and methane gas and a very small percentage of oxygen inside of this. And Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. Now, we don't know if it's a sperm whale or just a whale that God happened to create for this occasion. Um, but we do know that it swallowed Jonah. And like I said, I was reading this story uh, of the sailors on this ship were chasing a sperm whale. They're chasing a sperm whale and for several hours and then at certain point in the chase, the whale caused a few men to be pitched over into the ocean. And long story short, they finally chase down the whale, they kill it, they harpoon it, and, and then they are working for hours to get this whale up onto the deck. And then they've got hatchets, they've got axes, they've got knives, and they're cutting this whale open, taking the fat and putting it over here, taking the skin, you know, the bones. And they finally get down to the organs, and they see the stomach is flailing. And they realize there's signs of life inside of it, so they cut it open, and one of the sailors that had been pitched overboard is inside, still alive. Now, he's unconscious, um, and so with a salt bath, they kind of doused him and... um, just uh, woke him up, a saltwater bath, and they woke him up. But the crazy thing is, because of the severe lack of oxygen and, and some of the digestive enzymes that were working on him, he was like almost pasty white coming out of this. And uh, he, is, he had actually gone crazy. He was a raving lunatic, and it took weeks to kind of rehabilitate him back to his normal functions. Um, like, this is not an enjoyable moment to be in for Jonah, and he's composing poetry. Like, if you read chapter 2, it's a poem. Uh, And Jonah is waxing poetic as this stomach is working on him. And I love, like, he gets to verse 9. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. Guys, understand this. Jonah doesn't know he's coming out of this whale. Jonah is praising God for his salvation before it ever happens. And then something else happens is that Jonah gets barfed, vomited, projectile vomited out onto the land. Does that sound comfortable at all? Like, this hurt. God did this to Jonah. God was hunting Jonah down, and then in his mercy, God actually hurt Jonah. Like, this is not comfortable to be in, and and God brings salvation to Jonah through literal vomit. Guys, sometimes the mercy of God in your life is messier than you're praying for it to be. Sometimes the mercy and the grace of God is a bigger mess than you actually thought it was going to be. Now, there's a lot of reasons that this chapter for me is very significant. But I think the top of the list is that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says this. Jesus answered, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah 
is here. So according to the eternal reference of the eternal word of God, Jonah is a picture of Jesus our Messiah. In other words, the messiness of God's salvation for Jonah is descriptive of God's mercy and salvation that is available for the whole world. Like this is what Jesus is saying. Like just like the same way that God made a mess of Jonah's life, in the same way, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again so I can offer new life to the whole world. Please don't miss this. Often, God's saving mercy in our lives is messier than we expect, but it's precisely calculated for what we need. Don't go blaming God for ruining your life, for the mess that you're in. Let him use it as a sanctified classroom to teach you his ways. Sometimes God's mercy is messier than we expect it to to be, but that doesn't mean he's moved on from you. Maybe in his mercy, he's trying to move you to the next level in your maturity. And we see that that's what's happening with Jonah here. Uh, Pick up with me in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. Sound familiar? Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Now, this is the second time that the word of God comes to the man of God. But this time, it's almost identical, but something's changed. God hasn't changed. God's calling hasn't changed, but something has changed in Jonah. If you notice verse 3 in chapter 1, Jonah's response to this exact same call is very different. Jonah chapter 1 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah chapter 3 verse 3 says, Starts with the same thing. Jonah rose. Something different happens. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, Jonah rose and went according to the word of the Lord. Your obedience to the word of God, speaking to you in your life, is in direct correlation to your experience of the presence of God. Jonah rose and fled from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rose and went according to the word of the Lord. Jonah's response is very different in chapter 3. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now check this out. Now Nineveh was a big city, long story short. And Jonah goes into it and starts calling out against it. And you almost get the feeling that Jonah is enjoying this now. Like, you're going to die! You're going to die! 40 more days and you're going to die! And I'll probably have pie while I sit in my pie-in-the-sky-high view of you like Jonah's loving life, preaching against the city because like, finally, God, you get it. Finally, God, you let me go and tell somebody else who's worse than me how bad they really are. And Jonah's loving this. But then something happens that Jonah wasn't predicting. They repent. Like they hear this and they're cut to the heart and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their hearts and they repent. Not only just the people who hear it, the entire country Well, the entire city repents. And verse 10 says, when God saw, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. 
Something to understand about the structure of this small narrative is that, like I said, there's three main acts, each of which begins with the word of God coming to the man of God. And each act plays a significant role in, God, in what God was wanting to do in his world and what God was wanting to do in his man, Jonah. The first two acts actually begin with the exact same phrase. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this implies that there's actually a literary structure being employed by the writer here, drawing a direct comparison or contrast between the two narratives that are going to follow. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And something different happens in both of them. So what we see so far, what we've been shown so far up until this point in Jonah, in the narrative, is is this contrast between the me-centered heart of Jonah and the merciful heart of God. Jonah is so focused on himself and his own mess that he actually began to think that everything that God was doing was all about him and people who were like him, and it was for issues that were like his own. And he began to lose sight of people who weren't like himself and in issues that weren't like his own and totally forgot that, that God, God's heart was still for the people of Nineveh. They needed God and the hope, and the peace, and the joy, and the saving that he offers. Jonah's me-centered thinking was literally getting in the way of God's mercy in this particular narrative. And this is the contrast that chapters 1 through 3 bring to our attention. Now, chapter 4 is no less significant. It's, it's act number 3 in this divine drama, and it gives us really valuable commentary and a closer inspection into the state of Jonah's me-centered heart. So remember, Verse 10, God sees what they do, they repent, God forgives them. He relents, he shows mercy. In chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Jonah's ticked off at God because God's been haunting Jonah with his mercy, right? God has been haunting Jonah with this compassion and this forgiveness crap that I don't have time for, God. Verse 2, and he lit, this literally happened. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? Like, this is why I made it haste to run away to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Implication, and I didn't want you to be like that. I just wanted you to bless me. And people who are like me, so I could put you in a box that I understand and you're a safe God. And then I would be sure that you'd never ask me to do something that was beyond me. (laughs) It gets worse. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. And God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And instead of punishing Jonah here, God shows more mercy because Jonah goes and has a pity party pouting outside of the city and he's sitting down, he builds this little hut for himself and better than that, God grows this plant right up over Jonah to give him shade from the scorching sun. Jonah's sitting there, he's scorching, he's hot and he's just mad. He's hot inside, he's hot outside. He's mad at God, he's he's mad at Nineveh for repenting and God shows him mercy. And Jonah begins to like this plant. 
Jonah begins to, to love the fact that this plant is all about him. And God's up to something different here with this plant. I love this. Um, verse 7, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Ah, there goes that. And the sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that again he was faint. And he asked again that he might die, saying, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's a little drama queen. But God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Which is probably God speak for check your heart, Jonah. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Literally, I mean, you can read, that's exactly what Jonah says. And the Lord says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? In Jonah's pride, he literally could not imagine a world where the people of Nineveh would or could be forgiven of their sins and to be the one to offer God's mercy to them was worse than dying. Guys, God is so much bigger than the boxes we put him in. His mercy and his love and his forgiveness and his salvation are for literally everyone There isn't a person on planet earth to whom the salvation of God is not offered. Even the ones who aren't asking for it right now, even the ones who are actively running away from it, because guys, that is why Romans 5, 8 is good news. God demonstrates his love. We love to sing about God's love. What does it mean? He died for us while we were still sinners. Before we were ever asking the question, where's God? God came looking for us. This narrative continues with Jonah sitting under this little tree that God prepared for him. And it represents, as God says, the people of Nineveh. This tree actually represents the people of Nineveh. And and Jonah saw the shade tree in the desert as something that was all about him. And God was saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to make something so much more significant out of this. I'm going to teach you something. Teach your your prideful, me-centered heart something about my mercy. Jonah, you began to love this tree. Why? Why? Because you thought it was all about you. And you began to have pity on this tree when it died. You loved it. And then you felt really bad for it when it died. Jonah, this tree is exactly like Nineveh to me. I love the people of Nineveh. I desire the people of Nineveh. And I would feel really, really bad for them if I had to punish them. Something that would have to happen if they never repented of their sins. Something that never would have happened if no one had ever gone to preach to them. Something that never would have happened, Jonah, if you hadn't obeyed the voice of the Lord. God's basically trying to show Jonah that his mercy was bigger than Jonah's me-centered little world. God's mercy is about more than me. In fact, as I reflect on this book, um, one of the things that's really brought to my attention, to the forefront of my attention, is this idea that God's mercy moves me from me to mercy. It moves me from me-centeredness to others' centeredness. God's mercy is about more than my me-centered mess. And sometimes God has to make a mess 
to move me from me-centered to merciful. God's mercy is, moves me from me to mercy. And I just got a couple thoughts as I reflect on this powerful narrative. Number one, in God's mercy, he calls people into his mission. Right? Three times in this narrative, God is dialoguing with Jonah, calling him into his mission of mercy. And God had been moving Jonah beyond himself the whole time. Why? Because in his mercy, God gives us a mission that is bigger and is beyond ourselves. Sure, Jonah had his own issues to work through, and God mercifully worked on those as he was moving Jonah in his narrative of mercy. God's not waiting for you to figure out your own issues before he calls you into his mission, before he calls you into his mercy. I want to encourage you to move beyond your own mess into God's mission. And I'm not, hear me here. I'm not saying your mess isn't significant and it doesn't hurt. But what I am saying is that it's part of so much, something so much bigger. God's mercy makes your mess matter. Let God use you in his mission. In God's mercy, he calls people into his mission. The second thing I notice is that in God's mercy, he cuts the evil out of his people. Even if he has to hunt us or haunt us or hurt us to do so. In God's mercy, he cuts the pride, the contempt, the fear, the hatred, the bitterness out of my heart, out of your heart. Even if he has to hunt us or hurt us or haunt us like he did with Jonah to do so. Don't resist God's merciful surgery in your life. Don't resist God's merciful surgery in your life. He might just be cutting something out of you that's killing you. And maybe you just have the wrong point of view. I mean, God literally had to put Jonah inside of a digestive organ for three days to help, him, to help him to understand that God cares about more than just him. But not only was he doing that, he was bringing Jonah into his narrative of mercy. The third thing I noticed is that in God's mercy, he invites outsiders into his family. So go beyond your borders to experience the family of God and to invite outsiders into it. Like remember, Jonah was incredibly resistant to this whole time to accept the fact that God could possibly love or desire a people who were so different from him. And honestly, this has been humanity's, humanity's issue for thousands of years. And I don't happen to believe that we've moved very far beyond this weakness inside of ourselves. We often paint this picture of God who's exactly like us and only approves of things that we approve of. I have news for you. God's mercy is so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than me. Like, God loves people that you don't love. God cares for people that you'd rather not. God has mercy for people that you've put, put beneath yourself, that I've put beneath myself. And in his mercy, he invites us into that narrative of mercy. If you want to experience the merciful heart of God, if you want to know God, if you want to experience the, the family of God, you need to go beyond your borders to experience the family of God, and to invite outsiders into it. Because when you move from me-centeredness to see the bigger picture of God's mercy in all of his creation, you're going to begin to know the merciful heart of God closer than you ever did before. In other words, God's mercy moves me from me to mercy. Sometimes God's mercy is about more than my me-centered mess. And sometimes God uses a mess, he makes a mess, to move me from me-centered to merciful. God's mercy moves me from me 
to mercy. And that's my prayer for you today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the merciful messes in our lives. And we confess that sometimes we've made you in our own image. And we've made you look a whole lot like us. Because we really like how that feels and sounds. God, help us to see that you're so much bigger. Help us to be caught up into your narrative of mercy that's so much bigger than us. And I pray that the world would know the glory of God because the people of God are surrendered to him. Use us today to be your hands and feet and to show the mercy that you've given to us to the entire world. Amen. Man, it's great to have you today. You guys are dismissed this morning. You can stay. We're going to worship, but if you need to go, you can go. So good to see you all today. Jesus bless